Gracious God, we thank you for your sovereign care of us, how you uh, protect and guide your church and your people and uh, shower your blessings upon them even in the midst of imprisonment and persecution. We ask that you would uh, continue to turn our eyes toward Jesus. Help us focus on him and his kingdom, which uh, is an eternal one, and not fear the kingdom of men, but instead, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, be faithful witnesses to you in all circumstances and situations. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, for giving us your word, that you use uh, human authors like Luke to communicate your eternal truths to us. Um, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth, um, and especially to turn our eyes toward our Savior, that we might see his inestimable worth. Uh, give us uh, wisdom um, and give us insight into your word as we study it together this morning. Um, may you uh, edify us through it, not just filling our minds, but equipping our hearts and wills to serve you. And we ask these things in Christ's name, by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. And while you're turning to Acts 25, let me just uh, remind you where we are in the book of Acts of the Apostles. So we're in the final quarter of the book, and the final um, quarter of the book starting in chapter 21 uh, through the end in chapter 28, focuses on the circumstances that take Paul from Jerusalem to Rome. Um, and we saw this uh, starting in chapter 21 when Paul was seized in the temple uh, by a mob intent on killing him, uh, if not for the intervention of a Roman cohort who dragged Paul away not so much to save him, but to bring the public disturbance to an end. In chapter 22, Paul made the first of the many defense speeches that characterize the final section of the book of Acts. In this first speech, Paul defended himself, not by focusing on the immediate charge that he had profaned the temple, but instead by giving his personal testimony. Uh, he described how God had turned a faithful Pharisee and persecutor into a follower of Jesus willing to endure persecution in order to bring the good news to Jew and Gentile alike. In chapter 23, Paul made his second defense speech, this time before the high priest and the council of Jewish elders. Knowing the theological divide between Sadducees and Pharisees in the Sanhedrin, Paul appealed to his roots as a Pharisee and affirmed his belief in hope and resurrection. And in the subsequent tumult that his declaration caused, um, some Pharisees even defended Paul explicitly, saying there's nothing wrong with his views. And after that council, um, there was an important, just a little short scene, where the Lord appears to Paul and tells him, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So the Lord has, has given Paul this assurance in the face of um, coming threats against his life and this coming imprisonment uh, 
that he, will, he must testify also in Rome. Um, and we saw how that encouragement was necessary because right after that appearance, uh, zealous Jews vowed to kill Paul, which required Paul to be taken to Caesarea for his safety in that Roman province. Last week, um, chapter 24, focused on Paul's defense, both publicly and privately, before the Roman governor Felix in Caesarea. The Jewish spokesman charged Paul as being a seditious leader of a dangerous sect that threatened to infect the whole Roman world. Paul's defense was that he was minding his own business in the temple when others, not himself, caused the disturbance. Not only did he deny having violated the temple, he again asserted his personal faithfulness to Jewish law and his fidelity to the Jewish people. He also countered that the followers of the way simply believe what the law and the prophets taught and in their hope of the resurrection. The new sect, um, as it was uh, charged, was actually rooted in old promises and an appropriate reflection of Jewish hope. The way is fulfillment, Paul says, not the subversion of Judaism. In sum, Paul professed his belief in the God of our fathers and confessed his only offense was being religiously faithful to that God. Um, we ended last week seeing that the result of the trial was inconclusive. Felix, for personal reasons, he wanted a bribe. Um, and for political reasons, he wanted to curry favor with the Jews, left Paul sitting in prison for two years. Um, and I'll start in verse 27 of um, chapter 24 as we do our reading, because um, this change of governorship sets the stage for chapters 25 and 26, when Paul will make another defense, uh, first in front of a new Roman governor, and then before an assembled court that includes uh, royalty as well as the leading Roman officials of, um, of Judea. So hear now the word of God, starting in Luke, or Acts, sorry, <laughs> flashback to Friday night, uh, Acts chapter 24, uh, beginning in verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man... Let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, 
do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and, he, and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the, Jewish, the whole Jewish people petition me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write my lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he uh, expand it in our hearts and minds as we discuss it this morning. So, uh, the human driver of the action in chapter 25 is the new Roman governor, Portius Festus. And uh, I'm sorry, I... I Every time I hear the name Festus, I just think of Marshall Dillon's yokel sidekick, you know, Festus. Um, sorry. <laughs> now I put the image in your head, but Festus. Um, but, uh, but Festus uh, is the one who um, uh, is the, the force behind uh, a second hearing for Paul 
um, and for moving events forward after this kind of two years of Paul being in limbo in, in prison in Caesarea. Festus shows up, and now all of a sudden things start happening you know, within a matter of weeks. So, um, yeah, why? Why does Festus's arrival in Judea um, move Paul's case forward? Okay, there's maybe some entertainment factor, like, hey, show up, here's a guy sitting around, and Yeah, so the state functions, like he's doing what a good governor would do, rather than showing up and just immediately decamping to his um, you know, quarters in Caesarea, he, he makes a tour, um, and he goes to Jerusalem, and he's meeting with the local leadership. And then later in the book, we see um, other local leaders, uh, Agrippa and Bernice, come to see him in Caesarea. So he's, he's new, uh, he's new on the ground, and he's um, meeting with the leading local ruling figures. So Agrippa is um, a king of, uh, so he's the great-grandson of Herod the Great. He's, yeah, so he is, um, Josephus actually is pretty, um, uh, describes Agrippa fairly favorably in terms of his relationship to Judaism. Like he, he labels him, you know, as a devout man. And he would know Jew, and he's, he's known as a, a expert in Jewish law. Right. Um, because he is a Roman collaborator and, and Rome has given him he doesn't have um, control of Judea or Samaria, but he's got the kind of northeast part of Palestine above that. So he's, he's got a shrunken portion of his great-grandfather's um, kingdom. But he's still, he's the only living son of Herod Agrippa I, who died back in chapter 12. Um, so, so this he, he's, he's Herod Agrippa II, but calling him Agrippa here. But uh, in testimony to your, he's a Roman collaborator, he was also known as Marcus Agrippa, so having that Roman name as well. No, he was tried by the Romans by Felix last time. Oh. Last week, as we saw, he showed up before Felix, the Jews came with Tertullus, made their formal accusation against him. They charged him of being a pest, charged him with being a sectarian, um, charged him with being a, you know, a Nazarite uh, traitor, and with desecrating the temple. So they had, he, he, he's been tried by a Roman governor once, but that, the effects of that trial were the Roman governor wanted to see if Paul would bribe him <laughs> to let him go, and leaving him in prison appeased the, the Jews. So those two kind of motivations meant that Paul's been tried once in Caesarea and nothing came of his case. So again, that sets the stage for this chapter. Felix shows up and it, it, it sets into motion the, you know, a, another hearing before an, a Roman governor, another set of accusations 
by the Jewish leaders against him. Um, and here, you know, Luke doesn't go into the details. He just says they brought many and serious charges against Paul, which they couldn't prove. <laughs> um, so, but last chapter we saw, you know, some of the specific contents of those charges through Luke's recording the speech of Tertullus. So we can kind of assume that these charges in chapter 25 are in that same vein, trying to um, emphasize that Paul is a seditious traitor to Rome who should be executed. Yeah, before we get to, to that, let's, let's deal with the first part first, right? Because we've got the trial um, and, and the, you know, the, the initial tour and trial and Paul's appeal, and then Bernice and Agrippa show up after the fact. So let's just hold that for a second because so we can understand what um, Festus does and then how he defends his actions because you're right, there is a little bit of um, how he narrates it to uh, Agrippa and Bernice when they show up um, is a little bit self-serving. Um, but before we get there, let's see what he actually does with, with Paul first. Why, why do the Jews, like, you know, like, you know, he shows up in Jerusalem and, you know, the chief priests, the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summoned him to Jerusalem. So again, Paul's been on ice for two years. <laughs> um, yeah, two years. Um, those guys who vowed to kill him, uh, not eat until they killed him, are probably pretty hungry by now. Um, but, but yeah, clearly, um, if the, Felix's idea was, if I just put Paul away somewhere, things will simmer down, that is not the case. Um, that is not the case at all. Two years later, um, and we're back to what we're, the place we were in chapter 23. When, the, when it was day, the Jews made a plot um, and bound themselves by oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. They went to the chief priest and elders and said, we've strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring them down to you as though you're going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. And here we see, you know, the conspiracy part two. Bring him to Jerusalem. You've got this guy in, 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 in Caesarea. Do us a favor. Bring him to Jerusalem so we can hear his case. Um, but as Luke notes, their intention is to not hear his case. Their intention was to ambush, to kill him on the way. So, um, and there's a lot of uh, irony in this chapter. Here again, the people of the law are the ones who are actually subverting the course of justice um, to eliminate Paul. And Paul is having to turn to a pagan Gentile court system um, to, to seek justice. Um, so there's a lot of irony in that. 
Well, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, um, but they. They also think he's blasphemous. I mean, it's pretty clear they think he's blasphemous and deserving of death. Like, again, I mean, you kind of, kind of think it, of it in a sense. They want to do to Paul what they did to Stephen. And Stephen, they, they killed him on the spot. It didn't go through a Roman judicial process, um, which it was supposed to. Like, they didn't have the authority to execute people, but they did anyway. Um, and their preference is for that immediate spot on judgment of blasphemy by, by killing Paul. So I don't know if it's necessarily the weakness of their case, but Luke, you know, clearly notes their case is weak. Like, you know, they've brought many and serious charges and serious, the word there is heavy, like many and heavy charges that they could not prove. <laughs> um, they want them condemned to, to be condemned by death. And one of the repeated ideas in this chapter and it comes through, you know, often through Festus's own words, this guy has done nothing to deserve death. Yeah, Matthew. Yeah, and in a very similar way, just as in Jesus' case, you have this, you know, king show up as well, Herod, Antipas. You know, Luke described how Jesus was brought before him in the midst of his trials. And here you have Herod Agrippa showing up. And so, yeah, Luke is painting a lot of parallels between those two situations. Um, and, but, but using it to describe how Paul is, is, is creating this defense of Jesus' resurrection. Um, and we've seen over and over again, he's, he's laid this claim to, I believe in resurrection of the dead. And we can le look at that as, oh, he's trying to appeal to, to the Pharisees. But that's the central claim of his message. And we get the kind of, I, I love how, you know, Festus uh, in his summary, you know, describes uh, Jesus um, yeah, you know, they've got a dispute about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserts to be alive, like, you know, like, yeah, Paul's been talking about resurrection, but he's really interested in one particular resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, who is the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead, and who's the, you know, as Paul says in his, um, at the end of Corinthians, which we'll hear in a few weeks, um, will we hear in a few weeks? A <laughs> few months. 
some point in the, the relatively near future, um, we'll see how central the resurrection is to Paul's theology and Paul's understanding of, of Christ and what Christ has done for us. Um, and so when he talks about resurrection, again, he's appealing to the, to the Pharisees, but he's also laying out a central claim about the Christian message. Yeah, Brian. Yeah, and even though I agree it's very low, but if there was ever a moment when it might work, it's this moment, which again, I think, you know, why Luke is so focused on the immediacy, like uh, Festus shows up, and within three days, you know, they're appearing him. And, right, and he doesn't know them, and he doesn't know this case. So, like, he's showing up, the new guy, and clearly he's the new guy who's trying to bring peace to a turbulent region, and so the Jews come forward, hey, do us a favor, like, you know, he's the new guy who's supposed to rule these troublesome people, now's the time to ask a favor. It's like when the Puritans, um, who had been mildly persecuted under Elizabeth I, after Elizabeth dies, as soon as James comes to the throne, they present him with all these petitions, he only grants one, which is to translate the Bible, um, and so King James Bible, but, but they, you know, a new ruler uh, is this new opportunity to address, you know, these grievances and hopefully get, you know, turn the ear of the ruler to them. And Festus, you know, he, he's wishing to do, you know, as, as, as Luke says in verse 9, he's wishing to do the Jews a favor. Like, they, they know, like, if there's ever a moment, like, once he gets to know us, no, he's probably not going to do us a favor. Um, but he doesn't know us yet, so now's the time to ask. <laughs> um, and he doesn't know this case. Um, we can present to, you know, again, go through the, you know, Luke doesn't um, lay out what the many and, and serious charges are, but again, we can presume they're, as Tertullus did in the previous chapter, paint Paul as the leader of a sect that's seditious, and treasonous, and therefore this is a political matter in which Felix, you know, if Paul is um, is is proved to be seditious or a traitor, then then Felix absolute or Festus absolutely can act like and and can render judgment against him, even though he's a, a Roman citizen. So that's their their hope, um, and they've got a brief window. <laughs> um, you know, again, and, and it's this idea, the new guy showing up, he wants his, his rule to get off to a good start and appease the local population, and they're wanting to get their case before him immediately, like, you know, before too many facts about this case come to light, let's, let's, let's bring Paul up on charges, again, not with the plan B of we'll execute him on the way to Jerusalem. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, so they've kind of got, yeah, step one, try to curry favor with them. If that doesn't work, get them to bring them to Jerusalem. Like, even if he won't, if Festus won't execute him, if we could just get them to agree to bring Paul to Jerusalem, then we can deal with Paul um, ourselves. Um, so again, this is a, a truncated summary of this particular case. Um, so we don't get a long defense. Um, chapter 26, we're going to get a, a really long <laughs> speech by Paul. We don't get a long speech by Paul here. Um, but what would you say, it, or how does Paul defend himself this time? Um, and then, which leads to, like, why does Paul make this sudden appeal to Caesar? Yeah, Brian. Yeah, and... <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you make the appeal when you don't think the, 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 the tribunal you're in front of is, is, is competent. Um, and in this case, yeah, Festus being the new guy, is, is he really, can I really trust in him executing competent justice, or is he going to be swayed by, um, by, you know, political favoritism? Um, so, <laughs> right, um, yeah, so he doesn't, yeah, he, he, he doesn't have, um, he doesn't have firm trust <laughs> in, in Festus's um, ability to render a, a judgment. Um, and that's why you, you make the appeal. Um, if you don't think the judge before you is going to give you a fair trial, then you make the appeal. Um, and this is a long um, Roman tradition. Um, the original tradition was if you don't feel confident in the judge judging you, you could appeal to the populace, as, to the people of the city at, at, at large, and have a trial by the citizens. Um, or a trial by jury. Or, yeah, or if, you know, that's why we have trial by jury and not just a judge rendering a verdict. Like, it's that, that idea that, well, it's not just one person, that there should be some kind of check on the system. Um, and you can appeal, as you say, change of venue. Like, if you have, if you're in a case um, you can, and you don't trust the jury, you can appeal for a bench verdict that the judge render uh, in some states. Uh, you know, you can render for the, for the judge to render a verdict. Um, but it's this idea, if you have some reason to doubt the, the competency of who is rendering judgment on you, the right to appeal to an, an, another venue or a higher authority. Um, and there's a lot, um, you know, this was an old Roman tradition. Now it's gone from appealing to the people at large to appealing to, to Caesar by the first century. Um, but it's, it's been around much longer than this kind of a, um, appeal to higher authority has actually been around longer than Imperial Rome. Um, you know, it dates back to like the 5th century BC in Roman law. Um, so this is an old tradition, um, and as Brian notes, like a lot of the good parts of our legal system <laughs> we stole from the Romans. Um, <laughs> um, you know, to, to, to render justice. Um, and Paul is very clear, that's what he wants. 
he wants justice. I've, to the, I, if then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. Because to give me up to them is to, is to give me a death sentence, which I don't deserve. So if you're going to give me a death sentence, give it to me in the Roman system. Um, if you're going to give me a death sentence that I deserve, I'm willing to face that death sentence. But don't, if I'm innocent, don't turn me over to them so that they can give me a death sentence. Again, it's, it's, it's why we stole from <laughs> the, the Roman, Roman Civil Code when we said about how do we make laws um, in the Anglo-American tradition. Um, well, <laughs> what, how do... And here, and Festus again, if, 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 if justice is going to be perverted, it's going to be for similar political considerations. In this case, the new governor who might have a willingness to curry favor with the local population, um, going outside the system um, and, and letting Paul be taken to Jerusalem to have this hearing before the Jewish leaders, which, you know, as Luke is clear over and over again, is, is a virtual death sentence for Paul because they intend to kill him before he even makes it to the, to the Sanhedrin. Um, do note Paul's, you know, Paul's consistent defense over and over again. And here, um, you know, Luke just records it in a, in a sentence, really. Paul argued in his defense, so this is um, verse 8, neither against the law of Jews nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. So, you know, his, his defense over the last three chapters has been steadfast. I am a faithful Jew. According to the law, I've done nothing wrong. I brought gifts for the Jewish people. I was accompanying men to the temple for rites of purification. I did nothing to profane the temple. I have done nothing against Caesar or the Roman state. I am innocent of, of all charges under the Jewish law as well as under Roman law. So like it's, he, he's making his defense. He, he's not even guilty of the things, the, you know, if it's just an internal Jewish religious matter, he's not even guilty of the things that they're accusing him of there. Um, his, his, Consistent response is, I have a clean conscience as a, as, a, as a Jew and a clean conscience as a citizen of Rome. Um, you know, my conscience is clean, and therefore, you know, I, I want justice. <laughs> uh, yeah, Matthew.
yeah, in this, in this case, you know, Paul has been in front of the Roman Sanhedrin, um, and he split it. <laughs> like, he split it to the extent where one party was unwilling to, to render a verdict against him. Like, you know, he, you know who's to say he hasn't? Um, you know, heard an angel or seen a, you know, heard a spirit or seen an angel. Like, you know, it's, it's possible because, you know, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead too. Like, yeah, they've had him and he's had his trial before them and they couldn't render a verdict against him um, by the light of day. Um, but it's by, you know, they're trying to bring about, yeah, this other hour of darkness to bring about um, wrongdoing. And again, it's this irony, the people who are charging Paul with this violation of God's law are willing to violate all kinds of laws to kill him, um, all kinds of procedures to bring him to death. Um, and, and that's the, the portrait that, that Luke is painting here. Um, and then there's also this backdrop of, and we talked about this the last time, they're plotting um, but it's in vain. Um, in this case, it's even though Festus, you know, could could conceivably plot into it, um, he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't immediately bring Paul to um, to Jerusalem. He's like, no, let's have a hearing in Caesarea. And then he he he, he asks Paul, what do you want to do? <laughs> I'm inclined to let you go to Jerusalem. Will you go to Jerusalem? No. <laughs> Forget that. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, you know, you got all these plots and political mover, maneuverings, and yet, you know, Paul is being protected for this ultimate design. Again, that verse that I, I read earlier um, from, from back in um, chapter 23 of, of when God comes to Paul and says, just as you've been my witness uh, and testified to me in Jerusalem, so you will be my witness in Rome. And, and this, Luke is, is taking the time to narrate how is it that Paul gets, Paul the prisoner, um, Paul the man with a death sentence on his head if the Jews can ever catch him, you know, on the street, uh, how does he make it to Rome? Um, and it's through this process of his appealing to Caesar. Um, Another thing that's going on here, and this is to get back to, um, to what Rob raised earlier, this appearance before um, uh, Herod Agrippa and Bernice. Um, and Bernice, by the way, is his sister, although there were accusations of some incest there. Um, Bernice apparently was, like I told, told you last week, how Felix's wife, Drusilla, was noted for her beauty. Bernice must have been as well. She was later the mistress of Emperor Vespasian and Titus. Titus reportedly wanted to marry her, but antipathy toward her Jewish background was such that it wasn't politically feasible, but he kept her as his, his mistress. So, you know, they're not just regional monarchs. Like, they're connected to the halls of, of power. Um, and so this scene um, is, is a really um, important one. Um, so uh, let's, let's go back to, um, let's go back to what's, what's happening. 
Um, you know, why is, um, and I, I love like we have this long, the longest speech or the longest dialogue that we have in this chapter is from a Roman governor. <laughs> you know, most of the speech in this chapter is, is Festus speaking. And so why does Luke um, spend so much time describing this encounter between Festus and Agrippa and Bernice? Like, and, and what is, you know, what, what's our take on how Festus is narrating these events, which gets back to Rob's kind of like noting, you know, how self-serving <laughs> is his uh, speech here. But yeah, what's going on in this little segment? Or what strikes you about the segment? You know, what stands out? Why spend so much time talking about this? Um, yeah, what's what's Luke up to here? If Jay was here, he would say, "Well, he's being Luke, the faithful historian. He's making a good account of these things." <laughs> yeah. yeah, that here you and. This emphasis on, you know, again, Festus is recognizing Paul is, is, in, is innocent. Um, and Festus is, is a little bit baffled, like, okay, he's innocent, but he appealed to Rome, so why do I say I'm sending him to Rome? <laughs> you, know, um, you know, he's kind of in a bind here. Like, Paul has put him in a bind. Like, Paul has appealed to Caesar, so to Caesar, you know, as Festus says, to Caesar you'll go. But Festus has to send along an explanation, why am I sending you to Caesar? And, again, like the, the new royal governor not wanting to get in trouble with his boss, like, why are you sending this case to me? Like, really? <laughs> so he's trying to figure out, like, this whole last section is almost like him to figure how how Festus goes about figuring out how, what to put in that letter. <laughs> like, how do I explain to, and Nero, it's Nero at this point, how do I explain to Emperor Nero why I'm sending Paul to him? Yes. <laughs> Again, and it seems like he's most confused about the Jewish aspects of this. Like, he, he, he clearly sees that this is not a Roman state matter. Um, and this is a Jewish matter. So how do I explain this Jewish matter? Um, how, how do I figure it out? Which is why Bernice and Agrippa are really important part of the story. And, you know, he, he's going to them saying, you know, uh, help me here. <laughs> You know, how do I explain? Um, what do I say? Like, so, yeah, yeah, you understand Roman law and you understand Jewish law. So help me make sense of what's going on. So part of it is, again, like Luke documenting um, the process by which Paul makes it to Rome. Another part of it is setting the stage for the fulfillment of prophecies, um, New Testament prophecies, 
So um, flip with me to Luke chapter 21. Um, so in his first book, um, uh, you know, Jesus is, is, is telling his disciples, um, you know, he's foretelling the destruction of the temple, he's foretelling wars and per- per- persecution, um, he's foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem, um, and in verse 12, um, he says, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Um, and, you know, so Luke is, is in documenting this. Luke doesn't get to the destruction of the temple. He doesn't get to the destruction of Jerusalem. In, in the book of Acts, but he does get to the persecutions in synagogues um, and the appearing before governors and royal officials. Um, another place, uh, if you flip to Acts 9, this is a, something that was, had been specifically said about Paul. So after his, Paul's conversion in chapter 9, um, the Lord appears to Ananias. Um, and Ananias is a little nervous about going up to, to meet Saul because, you know, he's heard Saul's a persecutor of the church. But the Lord said to him, um, this is chapter 9, verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So, you know, he's setting the stage here for what Jesus had said coming true, what God had said to Ananias coming true. Um, and we have, um, I, I love how uh, Luke paints the scene. You know, the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. Um, you know, and they, they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. So, the five military tribunes are gathered there. Um, so all the chief Roman officials are present, and these two local royals are present, one of whom will later be, you know, connected to the highest, um, you know, power in this world, the Roman emperor. Uh, so Paul is, is literally going to enter into this situation where he is going to testify um, and present this, not just a personal defense, but to present this apology for Christianity to the most powerful people in, in Palestine. Um, it, it's, and it's part of what God had said would happen back when, when Jesus was preaching, back when Paul was converted. Like, this has been the intention of the gospel all along. Yeah, there's been persecutions, but there are also these amazing opportunities to testify to the truth of the way. Yeah, Matthew, yeah.
Yeah, and that this way is a way, it's, it's not a, well, the Jews rejected it, we're going to go to the Gentiles. No, the, the way is still for them. Like, you know, and, and Paul has never given up on the Jewish people and continues to minister to them everywhere he goes. He ministers to Gentiles too, and, and what's, you know, uh, again, what, what Luke has been emphasizing is that there is nothing, um, uh, there, there is nothing um, sedition of Judaism to, to add Gentiles in. Like, it's not a perversion of the Jewish message. In fact, this has been the intention all along, that this gospel is for the Jew and Gentile alike, and they can be built into a common community of believers. Um, that they And we saw earlier in the book, you know, the church wrestling, what does that look like? Um, you know, how, how, do we, how do we bring Gentiles in? How much do those Gentiles need to change? Um, and then, you know, the flip side is, well, Jews having to get over this um, innate hostility to, to Gentiles. How is that overcome? And it's overcome by the Spirit of God working in the hearts of people and showing them that this is the way. This is his intention. This is the plan. Paul didn't go to the Gentiles because he had to. Um, well, uh, he went to the Gentiles because he, God made him. <laughs> like He had to because it was from God. It's not because he felt some kind of compelling necessity to do it. The compelling necessity came from God showing him, no, this is for Jew and Gentile alike. And everywhere you go, you proclaim it to Jew and Gentile alike. <laughs> and um, and this idea that you know that there are stumbling blocks, you know that um, you know uh, as we saw in in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, um, for Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Like that idea that, um, yeah, God is presenting a message. And, you know, we see from Festus' reaction, like the Romans didn't have a concept of resurrection from the dead. And in that funny way he narrates it, you know, yeah, they had a dispute with him about their own religion. And religion there, the word religion... Um, it has a little negative connotation. It could be translated. Their superstition, like, it's clearly, like, their religion, like, what those people believe, <laughs> um, not what, you know, true religion. Um, about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Like, um, and, you know, that is a funny way. I mean, it's true, but it's a funny way of describing what Paul's really talking about, and it's because he, he has a hard time wrapping his idea around this idea of resurrection from the dead. What? Um, you know, that's, that's a foreign concept to him. And so he's going to Festus 
uh, or Festus is going to Agrippa and Bernice, and you know he's asking this question. Therefore, I brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I may have something to write. <laughs> For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Um, and so this sets the scene for, for next week when we get the longest um, speech of Paul um, for, for the rest of the book. So um, next chapter is almost entirely all Paul's words. And it's, you know, but, but Luke has spent a lot of time setting the scene here. You know, we have the most powerful Roman officials the most powerful leaders from Palestine all gathered into a room. And once again, Paul is going to have an opportunity to defend himself. And he's not going to talk about what happened in the temple. Um, he's not going to talk about the specifics um, of, of you know, the case itself. He's going to do, just as Matthew said a little while ago, do what he's been doing um, the last couple of chapters, tell his story again. You know, tell the story of how Paul, a persecutor of the way, became one who was persecuted for the way. Um, you know, that beautiful story of, of what God is doing, not just for Paul, but for the Jews and Gentiles as well. Um, all right, well, we're at time, so let me uh, close us in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for um, your providential care of your people. That uh, even in this chapter, as we see uh, the plotting of, of Jewish leaders to kill Paul, and we see the political uh, wavering of a Roman official who might be inclined to give in to their uh, request to do them a political favor, that you... Uh, direct all things to your end, which is to bring your servant Paul to Rome so he can testify to you there, um, to, uh, to people in power, but also to uh, scattered Jews and to poor Gentiles. Um, and we know that your gospel took, took root in that city um, and uh, took root among all segments of that city through the work of your church and the work of your spirit. And so we thank you for how you're directing all things to their perfect end, um, even as we see Paul here getting an opportunity to testify between governors and kings before the destruction of the temple, before the destruction of Jerusalem, um, even as your son Jesus said he would. Uh, we ask that you would help us to rely on your sovereign care for us, that we trust that you are bringing all things to their good and perfect end, and therefore we can have this holy boldness to speak truth, to speak truth to power, um, and to speak truth uh, uh, well and present the gospel well to a world that misunderstands it or who doesn't want to hear it. Uh, help us now in this coming hour as we uh, seek to worship you. Show us your glory. Help us participate in that uh, heavenly uh, um, 
ongoing praise of you uh, by joining our voices with those in heaven as we rejoice in who you are and your glory, even as we see that glory in our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.